be honest with you, people of God, this morning that the other shoe dropped, as they say for me, a couple of weeks back. It happened as I went into the local gym where I work out, poked my head through the door, and the man behind the counter barked out at me, mask. And with my head poking through the door, I yelled back, mask. And he yelled back at me, yes, mask. And he was talking about the new indoor mask mandate imposed by our governor. And before I went to the gym that morning, i got to be honest with you, it never crossed my mind that we'd be back to doing something so stupid all over again. So I went back to my car, dutifully grabbing the mask that I wear when I walk around the hospital, and I came back wearing it under my chin. And as I walked by that man, I shook my head with a look of utter disgust. It finally had enough. It's been a long year in which frustrations had been piling up. I don't even know where to begin. Axes that don't work, endless masking, forced vaccine, soldiers chaptered out of the military because they refused to vax. We've had a tough year as a Presbytery, losing three ministers and one by violence, watching 13 soldiers, soldiers needlessly slaughtered at the gates of the airport in Afghanistan, sky-high gas prices, food costs soaring to the skies, you name it. Then came this incident. A couple weeks ago at the gym and my frustrations, which had been percolating below the surface, boiled over. But here's the thing. What I began to realize is that I was bitter. Bitter. Bitter is defined by the Cambridge Dictionary as somebody who's angry and unhappy because they cannot forget the bad things that have been happening. Let me repeat that again. Bitter. Bitter is being angry and unhappy because they cannot forget the bad things that have been happening to them. And then you add to it this, that it's rooted in the Germanic languages where the word literally means biting or sharp. And that's the toxic nature of bitterness. It's a combination of angriness, unhappiness, and a kind of sharpness, a bitterness, a sting, which gnaws away at the soul. And here's the thing about that bitterness is it's a sin. It's a sin. In fact, it's a dangerous sin. The preacher says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble, and by it many are defiled. You see, that biting, that sharpness, that gnawing, that spiritual battery acid which eats away at the soul, the preacher says and warns the congregation, see to it that it's not, that root of bitterness is not taking place in your heart because it has this nature that it spills over from one heart to the next, defiling everyone else around us. You see, um, Bitterness may be excused as one of those polite Christian sins sometimes, but the Bible won't have any of it. The Bible identifies bitterness as a sin, and it identifies it as a soul-killing sin, and it identifies it as a congregation-defiling sin. And so this morning, as we transition from 
one year to the next as we put the past behind us and we work our way into the new, I propose that we do what Scripture commands, which is to put off bitterness. You say to me, Pastor, I'm not bitter this morning. I said, that's fine. If you're not bitter this morning, you can just listen along and pass the information to a friend that needs it. Or wait, because your time is coming. We're going to wrestle with bitterness. So this morning, I've decided to think about this idea of bitterness and how to put it away through the Lord's mercies by thinking about the story of Naomi, who literally changed her name from pleasantness to bitterness. And read in the context of Scripture, this passage teaches us that bitterness is put away by reflecting on new mercies in Jesus Christ. You see, that's the story of Ruth, as God, by His grace, conquered the bitterness of Naomi's sinful heart. And so I want to think about that this morning under two points. First of all, the front story, and then the new story. And I say the front story, first of all, because really, Ruth chapter 1 is a layered narrative. And at the surface level of this narrative, what you find really is a story of bad things happening. It is a story of bad things happening to Naomi. But underneath that, there's an undercurrent, and it continues to spill over into chapters 2, 3, and 4, where eventually we see the new story of God's grace emerge. And in that story of new mercies, we find what God was working all along through Naomi, which was to bring about David, to bring about Christ. And so we have the front story here. And the front story begins with whispers in Bethlehem. You can see that for yourself in verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now here's the thing about that verb stirred is that it's a passive verb. In other words, it means that this was something that was happening to the people who are watching Naomi as she strolls into town. The thing that happened or triggered among them is they came to be stirred. And the verb means uh, dismay. Dismay, surprise, a lack of understanding that leads to inquiry. And so by seeing Naomi, whom they have not seen for well over ten years... They are triggered, and they are shaken, and they are stirred by seeing her appear contrary to all expectation. And the women voiced what everybody was wondering themselves. Is this Naomi? See here, the women of the town, as they looked upon Naomi, have this very biting question. Is this Naomi? I've already said here, the word Naomi means pleasant. And no doubt the circumstances of her life once reflected pleasantness, the very meaning of her name. But now as they see her coming into town, she looks nothing like Naomi. She wears bitterness on her face. She looks old. She looks angry. She looks like she's been mourning. She looks anything but pleasant. She had left beautiful and blessed and with a family. And now she returns haggard, destitute, and alone. Well, not entirely alone. She has uh, this Moabitess gal with her. But knowing what the people of God and what the law said about a Moabitess, she might as well have been 
alone. And so the story begins with whispers, and it turns uh, really to a loud outburst, a tirade. Notice how Naomi responds as she hears the questions. We read in verse 20, she said to them, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very severely with me. It's as if Naomi feels the eyeballs upon her as she comes into town. It's as if she senses there is this sort of x-ray vision implanted in the eyes of the women of the town who are gazing upon her. And they see straight through her soul and into her life. And they see this woman is not the same. She feels the weight of those stares and the whispering and the gossiping and the gesturing and the finger pointing, and so she hits them straight head on. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. The Hebrew word here means disagreeable in taste. Well, you can kind of see how that naturally, metaphorically spills over into the idea of psychology and emotions and the spiritual life. It means anguish and despair and bitterness and distress. She says, this is my new name. And I have this new name and I'm giving myself this new name because God made me this way. That is her outburst against God here in verse 20 and 21. She launches four accusations against God and she does it in a rather literary kind of way. Because if you look at the outburst or the tirade here, she has reference to the Almighty in the first and in the last part of her speech. In the inner frame of it, she references the name of the Lord twice. So let's think about her outburst according to that literary frame. And first of all, notice here, she refers to the Almighty. This is Shaddai. This is the word for power. This is a divine title. This accents the sovereignty of the hand of God at work. And so here, as she gives herself this name, she immediately moves to explain it. I want you to notice the for there. Don't call me bitter. For. See, what follows is the explanation for the self-appointed name change and the reason why she says, you are not to call me Naomi, but Mara, bitter, is because God has caused bitterness. The New American Standard here translates, the Lord has dealt very severely with me or bitterly with me. But a better translation of the original here is to say, God has caused me bitterness. It's not just that He has dealt, He has caused me to be bitter. Notice the other part of this frame at the end of verse 21. See, the Almighty has afflicted me. That means to send calamity and ruin. Once again, the Almighty is where Shaddai is used here. The word of power and of strength and of sovereignty of might. You see, Naomi's not going to allow anybody to silver line her dark clouds. For her, they're going to remain what they are. Dark, painful, distressful, and jagged. Now work to the inner frames here when she speaks about the Lord. We have a double barrel blast here. Verse 21a, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Once again here, the, the, per, the, the, the arrangement of, of, of the words here is important because she's setting up a contrast to, to highlight and to, to place emphatically 
hear what's happening to her. So she says, full I went out, empty I came back. Full I went out, empty I came back. In other words, she's saying, when I was in charge and in control of my life, things were good. I was full. And most likely what she means by fullness here is that when she went out, she had a husband. She had children. She had a future. See what she's saying? As she strolls down memory lane in her own thinking, what she puts the emphasis on is that when she was in charge of her life, it was going great. The only problem is now God's in control and God has brought her back. And notice what God has brought her back like. Empty. She comes back without a husband. She comes back without children. She comes back without a future. What she's lost is her youth, her beauty, and her blessings. And what it's replaced with is being old, haggard, tired, destitute, and homeless. She portrays her life when she is in control as a white picket fence life. And when God is in control, it's a life of ruin. God brought her back empty, widowed, childless, hopeless, barren. Notice the final accusation here, 21b. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me. Here she continues on with a theme of name change. She's drawing out the reasons for it. And we have the final reason for the name change here. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me blessed. Because the Lord has witnessed against me. This is a legal term. This comes from the courtroom. Basically, what Naomi is saying is that God, the Lord, has charged her and prosecuted her and convicted her and found her guilty before the Lord. In other words, what Naomi is saying is the reason for the emptiness in her life is because the Lord caused it to happen this way. That all that they see as they look upon her with their dismayed eyeballs is what they see is the evidence of the hand of the Lord in judgment upon her. She's weighed her circumstances. She's found they're not by accident. She understands that they're from the Lord. And that's what makes her bitter. She's conscious of the fact that she's a wreck. And she's a wreck because God's made it that way. It's obvious here that Naomi has framed her situation according to a particular perspective. And I'm not saying her perspective is is entirely wrong. I think we could say that it's probably legitimate to see that much of the calamity in her life was indeed the evidence of the Lord's hand in chastening. We need to read this verse as Presbyterians. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, paragraph 6, speaks about the role of the law in the life of the believer. It says this, the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve. And what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. So one of the things that the confession says for us as believers, when we read the law of God, one of the things that we're reading is not just about the righteousness of God, but also about the chastening and the affliction of God, which will come upon us 
if we choose to ignore and violate and transgress the law of God without repentance. And Naomi looks upon her life and she thinks about her fullness and she thinks about her family as they fled from the land of promise among the covenant people of God to live in the pagan, idolatrous land of Moab. And she says, this is what has come upon me by the hand of God. In a sense, you could say that Naomi's theology is Presbyterian. She knows her afflictions are of the Lord because of the way she's lived her life. She's not blameless. But the issue is, what is Naomi going to do about it? It's one thing to be a Presbyterian in their theology and interpret your circumstances in light of the Word of God and to understand that the misery in your life just could be because of you. It just might be because of your disobedience. But you see, our Presbyterian theology doesn't just teach us to read our circumstances alive of the world just to interpret it and leave it there. Now, the purpose of it is to lead us to humility before the Lord so that we come before Him on bended knee in repentance. What we see right, knee, right now is a Naomi who is sulking, but it really seems that she's mad. She is mad at God for being righteous, for being a good and faithful Heavenly Father. And so she is wallowing in self-pity. She is wallowing. In bitterness. And the question is, what should she do with the fatherly chastisements of the Lord? That reminds us this morning, people of God, is the difficulty and the pain and the jagged edges of your experience are designed to call you to repent. They're not designed to drive us to bitterness. They're not designed to drive us to a sort of fatalistic acceptance of the difficulty of our life. They're designed to lead us to understand that the afflictions and miseries and sorrows come from the hand of God because He's our Heavenly Father. And so we're to understand this morning the things that make you miserable and that frustrate you are the very things that God has sovereignly given to you in spite of whether you were in charge of all the circumstances that led you there. Acknowledge your sins and your misery before the Lord and to repent. You see, the pathway to getting away from Naomi to Mara is to understand and perceive our problems as they are according to the plan of God. It's to evaluate our life situation as Presbyterians, as people who are interpreting the law of God and applying it properly. To understand that God as our Heavenly Father has not taken His hand off of us. In fact, I remember the preacher saying in Hebrews chapter 12, you should rejoice if you're having problems in your life and sufferings because it means He loves you. The person who is cruising through life without problems is a person who should be afraid. Because God shows that He's a good Heavenly Father and that you are in the embrace of of Him, because He sends you the affliction and the chastening to turn you away from your sin. People of God, if we're bitter, we're wrong.
And I know this is uncomfortable for us. Because we feel like so much of what's causing us bitterness is something that we had no hand in. But I remind you once again, people of God, something I've been repeating uh, throughout this entire season is that God, I believe, has given this all of this suffering and misery to shake up His church. I don't see this as much about being uh, about the world as it is about the church. What will we be? How will we be before the Lord? Will we uphold our confession of faith and worship God and, and live under the reign of Jesus Christ as we ought and be a faithful people walking in the midst of a generation of darkness? Or will we hide? Will the shallowness of our confession of faith be exposed? And we'll just join the generation of the complaining and the fearful. God would call us to a robust faith through a season of reflection. And one way that we cultivate that robust faith and seize the call of God upon our lives is to put away our bitterness about it. Understand that God in His wisdom has ordained every circumstance that you're irritated with. Think about that. God has ordained every circumstance that you are irritated with. Well, that's so hard to believe. Maybe it's not hard to believe. It's hard to embrace. The people of God, responding to it like Naomi did, is not Presbyterian. It's not Christian. It is not the way of the disciple of Christ. It's to ask God, what repentance and what fruit of repentance do you seek from me? If we're not asking that question, we're not learning about what God is doing. I know it's not easy to do that, so move on from the front story to the new story. Because really, this text, when understood within this broader context, is a story of how God is conquering bitterness through grace, through a new work. And what we want to see here is that while Naomi is busy brooding in bitterness and letting it gnaw away at her soul like battery acid, God was at work preparing new mercies for Naomi. And not just new mercies for Naomi, but new mercies for you. We see the beginning of the outlines of that new story in verse 22. Now, so Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The first element of the new story here is a committed daughter-in-law. Naomi returned with Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law. You see, Ruth's presence with Naomi is the beginning of God filling Naomi's emptiness, really. And that story of newness begins in the old story of loss. If you look up in your text of verse 2, you begin to see the old story of loss. We're told that Elimelech, who ironically means my God is king, this was Naomi's husband, uh, they took off for Moab with their two sons, Malin and Kilian, and they went to live in the land of Moab. And interestingly, uh, this book is one of those books where the study of names is important because you have a Limelech who's 
my God is king is acting like anything but Christ is his king. And you have Naomi who acts anything like, well, pleasant. And then they have two sons and their names are very apt. The name of the one son, Malin, means sickly and the other, Killian, means frail. What a portent. What a portent. Because as we see their disobedience takes them into the land of Moab, calamity follows just as you would expect. We read there in verse 5, after about 10 years, both Malin and Killian died. This is the old story. This is the old story preparing for the new story. But notice the old story is not the story that Naomi told herself. I went out full. It was all roses. No, it was a story of death. So what did Naomi do in response? Well, she decided to go home. You can read about that in verses 6 through 13. But one of the interesting things that's at the heart of this story is she has heard about the barley harvest going on back in Judah. And so she gathers up the daughter-in-law that still survive, Orpah and Ruth, and, and she gathers them and says, pack your bags, we're going to Bethlehem. But interestingly, about halfway there, she stops in her tracks. She says, go home. She says to her daughters-in-law who've lost their husbands, she says to them, go back to your home. Go back to your people and go back to your gods. Yet... Remember, this is a story of newness, and it begins with the fact that Ruth the Moabitess is there by her side. And, well, Ruth's not like her sister-in-law, Orpah, who returns home. No, Ruth is very different. She'd have none of it. Notice here in verse 16, Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and I will be very bare. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. Notice this very impassioned speech here. The first line of it grabs you, doesn't it? Stop telling me what to do. Stop telling me to go home. Stop telling me to go back to idolatry and paganism. I won't go. And then she makes five bold promises in the concrete to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Get this, the third one. Your people will be my people. Well, how improbable is that? After all, being a Moabite means she cannot literally, legally, covenantally be a part of the people of God and go up to them in worship. Because the Moabite was prohibited from the holy things of God. And yet... She seizes and claims what's impossible. Your people will be my people. Notice even further the next promise. Your God will be my God. This is a willful determination to cast off idolatry and the paganism of the false worship of Shemash and trade it for the worship of Yahweh. This is a profound testimony of conversion. Because this isn't just a commitment to Naomi. This is a commitment to Christ. The Lord has been working in her. Being gracious to her. Drawing her to herself. And here she expresses 
her embrace of the Lord Jesus unto salvation. Then she says, where you are buried, I will be buried. The family graveyard will be where her casket will lay. The capstone of it all, I think, is the the climactic part of the text where she takes an oath. Notice here, the, the final portion of her speech is, May the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death departs, causes me to depart from you. You see, she's calling upon the, the, the curse of God upon her, a series of plagues and disaster. If one word of her oath of promise fails, what strikes us about this is she didn't have to do any of it. They could have stood there in that dusty turnout on the freeway to Bethlehem after she heard the exhortation of Naomi to return home. And she could have let Naomi go home lonely and bitter and broken and dejected and depressed and hopeless and bereft of progeny in a future. But she didn't. She clung to her. In fact, it's a covenant word, clung to her. It's, a, it's the very word of Genesis 2.24, of marriage. This is a deep covenant. She says, I become your daughter. You see, the beginning of the new story of God's grace here as Naomi works her way into Bethlehem is that she's not alone. She claims that she went out full and she's coming back empty, but the fact of the matter is before she even steps her sandals in Bethlehem, God is already working to fill her void with grace. He gives her a daughter, and as we'll read, the people of God tell her, This daughter is better than seven sons. The second element of the story of grace is, well, what's in your text here? It's harvest. Notice, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is um, ten years after they left. We know that because the text tells us that was the time frame. And when they left, there was famine all over the land. That means the rivers and streams and tributaries and reservoirs and water tables were bone dry. That meant there was no food and that meant there was barrenness and that meant that, well, it meant that God's judgment was upon the people of God. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 are very clear that famine is a mark of divine judgment upon the people of God. That's what it was like when she left. And now notice what it's like as she comes home. It's the beginning of the barley harvest in Bethlehem. And once again, I call attention to names here because they're so important to this story because Bethlehem literally means house of bread. When she left Bethlehem, it wasn't the house of bread. It was the house of barrenness. And this is part of that new story that I was telling you is taking shape already in chapter 1 while Naomi is brooding in her bitterness. The new story is already unfolding before her as her daughter-in-law is at her side and as she sees the fields are widened to harvest and it's barley harvest, which means there's this harvest and then right after that becomes the wheat harvest. And in other words, it means she has come back to the house of bread at precisely the time in which her cupboards will be full. 
not just for today or for tomorrow, but for the rest of the year. You see, what God is doing is He is bringing her back. And He's bringing her back to fill her emptiness with His fullness. The third element here is a match made in heaven. Uh, Ruth is a lovely story. Go home and read it this afternoon. It'll bless your Lord's Day. It's a lovely story. We don't have time to tell it, but we do see the match made in heaven as you see that in verse 1 of chapter 2. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, that would have been Elimelech, and a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Well, you know how the rest of the story goes. Naomi uh, sends Ruth out to the fields to 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 graze in the fields of of Boaz, and the next thing you know, a relationship strikes up, and we find that, uh, well, uh, Ruth is down at the threshing floor in the middle of night asking Boaz to cover her with him of his garments, which is the equivalent of her proposing. She didn't quite get down on her knee and propose, but it's pretty close. And so, you know, the rest of the story is that Boaz goes down to the city gates where the courthouse was, and he met with the people of God there, and he says, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess. In other words, he responded, he responds to her proposal favorably, and takes her as his wife, and raises up the name of the deceased, as he says, on his inheritance. And the rest is the story of God's great New work. In verse 13, you read that God enabled her to conceive and she gave a birth to a son. Remember here the testimony of, of the people and the question, is this Naomi? That's really a testimony because it's a, a statement of incredulity. Blessed? Pleasant? No. Haggard? Yes. Destitute? Yes. Hopeless? Yes. Familyless? Yes. But now, what do those same people say to Naomi? Chapter 4, verse 14, the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you then seven sons has given birth to him. This is the new story of God's grace. It's this match made in heaven, if you will. Because um, not only does uh, Naomi, con- or rather Ruth, conceive and, and give birth to uh, a, a boy named Obed. He's not just any old Obed. He's the father of of Jesse, who was the father of David. In other words, uh, Ruth gave birth to David's grandfather. In other words, Naomi is the great-grandmother of King David. She said she went out full and came back empty, but I think we can just reverse that now, can't we? She went out empty, and she came back now full. Because Boaz isn't emptiness. Ruth isn't emptiness. Obed isn't emptiness. 
God brought back Naomi to make her full. Full with a daughter. Full with a son-in-law. Full with a grandson. Full with a future. And above all, full with grace. You see, as you take up the genealogy that's in the last verses of Ruth chapter 4, and as you take up verse 21 and 22, and you plug it into the New Testament, here's what you get in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 and following. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. In verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. You see, the Lord was filling Naomi's emptiness with grace, and not just any grace, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the fullness of Naomi's blessing by God is nothing less than Jesus Christ. And so the new story of grace here is about God through his mercies conquering a woman who was bitter. And he conquered that bitterness by his grace. The story of Naomi really then is a story of changed names, isn't it? From Naomi, pleasant, to Mara, bitter, to Baruch, blessed. Blessed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so after seeing here, people of God, the deep and entrenched bitterness of Naomi, I think we cannot help but hear the complaining of Mara as a call to us this morning. That call is to get rid of your bitterness. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. What is bitterness? Bitterness is resent. Resent towards God, resent towards circumstances, and resent towards people. And so if you stop and think about it, bitterness is really always at root about God. So if you're mad at somebody else or you're mad at other circumstances, what you're really saying without following the deduction all the way through is that you're really angry at God. You're bitter with God because all of the circumstances in your life have been eternally foreordained by God. Even the bitterness. And so the Apostle Paul, knowing that, says to the people of God, put it away. And as we stand on the second day of a new year, it strikes me as the perfect point to pivot away from everything we were angry about last year. It's a perfect time to pivot away from all the things we were angry about last year that stole our joy and consumed our thoughts. And so, this morning, people of God, whether your bitterness is like mine, it doesn't have to be. I already confess before you my sin, what I was angry about, what I'm bitter about, almost to my bones bitter about, but it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it Christian. It's not Presbyterian. It's not like Christ. So reflecting upon this story, I found help in thinking about how do we do this? How do we do this hard thing, which is crucifying 
bitterness that we feel justified to cling to. How do we do that? And the answer seems to me to look right back at the circumstances. Remember, what was Naomi's problem? Her problem was her circumstances. And as we've pointed out here, there was a circum set of circumstances, which was the old story, and another set of circumstances, which has to be seen with the eyes of faith, which is a new story of grace. But in reality, it's all the same. The reason for the bitterness was the circumstances. So if it's the circumstances this morning that make us bitter, we find the solution to taking those circumstances or those people or those problems and putting them away through grace. Because you remember, really what Ruth is about is or, it's about the story of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to the, those who are called according to His purpose. Here's something that you would believe if somebody put a gun to your head and called you to deny it. God causes all things to work together. I dare say there's not a person in this room who would deny that. All of us know that. In fact, all of us rejoice in that. All of us are thankful for that. We rejoice in the knowledge that God is sovereign over every single aspect and component of reality. We rejoice in it. He causes all of it. It's perhaps one of the easier things for us to say. It just happens also to be one of the hardest things to let your life be governed by. Especially when the circumstances lead you to be bitter. No one will ever argue against God causing the thing that we have such trouble with is that God causes them for good. You see, I doubt if you had told Naomi the, the end of the story from the beginning that she would have had the same kind of bitterness that she had, right? It's the not knowing. It's the not seeing. It's the not sensing the fact that in the very set of circumstances that trouble your life and make them so hard and miserable and difficult that leads you to let go and sin, to allow that biting sharpness to consume your soul, is that God is in the midst of them working. And not just working, but working them for good. And so this morning, our text points us to the way to put off this bitterness by looking at the circumstances and agreeing they're caused by God. But more than that, he causes them for good. You say, Pastor, I have a really hard time believing that this morning. And I say, I do too. And that's why I always have to go back to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? I have to go back to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What good could come of that? Well, only our eternal salvation. The appeasement of the wrath and curse of God against all of our sin. Only the world made new. 
You see, that's a prime example of this story we're speaking about, this new story of where God takes the ruin and the misery and He works it for good. So this morning, if you're wondering how you do this, how do you transition from Mara to Pleasant? Well, you do it like this. You embrace God in Jesus Christ. You trust that whatever misery and evil and sorrow and suffering He has brought into your life in this veil of tears, He will turn to your good. For He is able to do it being Almighty God. But what's more, willing also. Faithful Father. And so instead of dwelling upon the circumstances and the people and this problems that make us feel overwhelmed with this weight of spiritual bitterness, what we do is we look to God in the face of Jesus Christ and we find our hope is anchored there. That God does indeed, God does indeed sovereignly overpower the misery of our circumstances to work them for our good and for His glory. So I pray for all of us here this morning that we would learn to be pleasant as we lay hold of God in Jesus Christ and trust in the promise of His Word that He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purposes. People of God, may the Lord bless your crucifying bitterness.